Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. And what we said last week is, is going to, I'll try to say it as many times as I can, is, is we're looking at kind of seven weeks of, of attempting to focus on the L in the he would love first. What does love mean? What does it mean in our culture? What does it mean to people who follow Christ? How do we live that out in the world around us? How do we grow in love? How do we attain love? How do we give love? All, all the love things, and we're going to try to tackle these questions and yet it's a full conversation. So we're not having a series of one-off moments that can be taken, um, sliced up, and, and snippets created, and then run with. It's sort of a full conversation. So my, my encouragement each and every week is um, be in the whole conversation because it's going to keep evolving and we're going to keep going. And I also said last week, and it holds true, is every single person is probably going to have their worldview uh, bruised a little as we go through this because um, the call to love like Jesus is, is a high calling. And so as we go through it, um, my challenge to you is to stick in when it feels like that runs counter to, to what you are comfortable with. Um, ask questions of yourself. Ask questions of the scripture. If you need to have that conversation, ask those questions of me. Uh, my, my goal here is as we go through what love really is, we are not uh, giving you my opinion or perspective. What we're attempting to do is give you uh, Jesus's perspective, the, the scriptural perspective on what is true love and how we attain that and live that out. So all of those uh, disclaimers out of the way. Uh, last week, we deconstructed love as our culture, modern culture, defines it today. Uh, what we're going to do is dive into the idea that love is more than a feeling. It's not uh, just whatever doesn't hurt someone else. It's not just love is love. Um, we deconstructed, so today we have to do the, the more difficult work of reconstructing. And so what we're going to attempt to do is reconstruct and unpack um, what Jesus would say love really is. And while most of this series, uh, starting next week, is going to be 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, um, today we're going to finish what we started last week in John 15, uh, building on the foundations of love. So before we do that, I'm going to give you a definition. I'm going to give it to you now so you can dislike it now, and then we're going to explain why that's the definition, and at the end, we'll see if we agree. Um, love, as it is described in Scripture, is obedience rooted in commitment as evidenced in self-sacrifice. Love is obedience. This is, we don't like obedience. Love is obedience rooted in commitment as evidenced in self-sacrifice. All right, John 15, starting verse 9. Uh, Jesus is speaking. He says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. So my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. So this passage, as Jesus is speaking, talks at the beginning of as the Father, it says, as God the Father loves Jesus, 
Jesus loves us. That's what it's saying. Is God the Father loves Jesus with this sort of perfect Trinitarian love. That's how Jesus loves us. And then it ends with this command, love each other. In the, in the middle, in that in-between part between verse 9 and verse 17, that's where love begins to get defined. And I already told you, I need like a siren, you know one of those red lights that spins around? I need one of those and I need a button. So when I have unpopular uh, opinion alert, I should just put it on and everybody can, oh, this is going to be unpopular. Uh, unpopular concept alert, love is rooted in obedience. And you're like, well, that's not so unpopular. Yeah, it is. Culturally, we don't like obedience. We really dislike the idea that we are supposed to obey anyone. And as soon as our prefrontal cortex starts uh, working and we're 11, 12, 13 years old, we immediately start telling our parents, they don't know what's best for us. I'll do what I want. We idolize rebels and iconoclasts. We, uh, We believe that obedience, as boring as it sounds, is something for small children and pets, but not for adults. We prize freedom. We love freedom. Our country was founded on the basis of freedom by obedient men, obedient women. No, we were founded by rebels. We were founded by people who were willing to refuse what the royal England king and queen, we're not paying those taxes, and you push the tea into the harbor. We were founded on a rebellion against a monarchy. Over the past couple of years, you've seen a lot of disobedience on display, some civil, some less. Disobedience at marches and rallies, disobedience in major cities about a year ago at the nation's capital. At the heart of it, people are disobedient when they feel that obedience jeopardizes their freedom. If you look at almost all disobedience, almost all disobedience, this is not a universal, but it's a, it's a generalization, almost all disobedience is rooted in somebody's fear that their freedom is being taken from them. And so in order to gain more freedom, we must be disobedient. Sometimes we even do that for our preferences. Freedom can't be threatened because at its core, it is, as Americans, it is our God. It's our false God. It is our one true idol. We believe in freedom above all other things. And when we are not careful as Christians, we will put freedom above Jesus. And we are great at fighting for freedom, and we forget about Jesus in the meantime. Because freedom for us is our ability to remain in control of ourselves. Freedom is saying, I own me, and I own my life, and I own my time, and I'm in control. Freedom means I'm in charge of me. And the idea that somebody else would come in and tell me what to do, tell me what to think, tell me what to believe, I can't have that. We are Americans. Freedom. The problem is that freedom in our country is largely settled. I'm not here to tell you that there aren't risks to that. But nobody here, I can assume, nobody got driven over here by the prison camp um, forced labor bus. Nobody stood in line for government rations this morning for your breakfast. Like, we're generally really free, despite the fear that's out there. And so what we've done as Americans is we've graduated from protecting freedom to protecting preference. And we've, we've graduated from protecting our freedoms, which I'm not saying aren't important, to protecting our preferences, because freedoms are largely settled only we still call it freedom. This is a challenge for us, and yet it's it's really readily apparent. We love our preferences, and we love to protect them, and we're really not real happy when they start getting messed with. Younger generations love to make fun of older generations, because older generations, well, they always end up gathering over tea or coffee or at the 
grumbling about these young kids these days ruining everything for everybody. These young kids these days, they're changing everything. And this is not new. This is not a jab at older generations. This has been happening forever. We have an older generation that grew up in the 50s, 60s, 70s. And what did the 70-year-olds in 1960 say? Oh, these kids these days are changing everything. They're free love and they're hippies. They're a bunch of... And in the 20s, the flappers, these kids are changing everything. And you go back to the 1880s, it's every generation has, as we get older, we, as we get older, we find that our preferences, that we've finally gotten power and we finally established our preferences, older generations get frustrated because the younger generations, as they take power, begin to shift the way preferences are happening. Younger generations, you get this too. Younger generation, especially these days, loves preference because they've never known another world. If you are under 30 and you grew up in a digital world, you've never known a world that didn't have an algorithm based on creating an existence that fit your preferences. So the idea that your preferences aren't king, that you aren't in charge of your own world, that maybe you shouldn't be the king and queen of your own kingdom, is a strange feeling because you've been raised in a world that would tell you, yes, you're absolutely the king. You click on this, this, and this, and we're going to show you customized ads, and you got to, like, like your Netflix and my Netflix looks different. Because there's 15 different posters, like movie pictures for every little rectangle, and yours has pictures of one certain kind of thing, and mine, it has a different picture altogether, because they know that I'm more likely to click on things when they're, when they're the face of the, the main character, and you're more likely to click on things when it looks like the battle scene of the main thing. And so uh, they know, and I prefer that. And really subtly, I prefer it this way, and, and I start to say everything I like is coming my way. I put on Spotify, he just knows what I want. I just, I'd prefer it that way. The radio, forget them playing that stuff for the old people. I want my way. And we, we, we've started to lionize our preferences, and we've called it freedom, but we've lionized our preferences, and we've decided that on some level, my freedom, my preference, my being in control and in charge of my own life is what I'm really about. So we'll start with a basic truth of Christianity, and I said... You're not going to love everything we talk about for these seven weeks. But here's the basic truth on the foundation of Christianity. Three phrases. You do not own you. You are not in charge, and you are not your own. If we are followers of Christ who call Jesus our Lord and our Savior, these three phrases are true of us. You are not your own. You are not in charge, and you don't own you anymore. And something in us, freedom's not bad. Something in us as Americans pushes back and we go, that feels like someone trying to tell me what to do. Paul, talking to the people in Corinth, faced a pretty similar kind of culture. And he heard the arguments that our hearts make in response to those three statements. 1 Corinthians 6, 12 Paul says, I have the right to do anything, you say. Uh, what about my freedom, you say? But not everything is beneficial, which sounds familiar. We have the right to do anything, freedom. But God has set up guardrails for our good and for our benefit. So Paul is beginning to refute arguments that we can just do anything. And he's doing it in a sense against the, the Gnostics. We talked about the Gnostics when we, when we preached First John last year and, and how this idea that the body and the, the spiritual and the physical are separate from each other. And so what Paul is trying to attack kind of directly is that what you do with your body is inconsequential. He's like, no, 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 they're, they're tied. They're all in it together. 
what you do physically has plenty to do with your spiritual reality. And so we can't start to separate those. That's what Paul is in context doing, but it applies as well here. He's saying this idea that one thing, you can do what you want with your body, but what you believe is different, that's garbage. He says your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, that Christ lives in you, and then he gets real and he ends the argument in verse 19 and 20. He says, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. And that's the part where we go, this goes from a theory, like you're not your own, like maybe there's some, did something happen here? And he explains exactly what happened. You were bought with a price. As a follower of Christ, you've been bought with a price. You don't own you. You belong to somebody. You've been purchased. You've been ransomed from death, and you are now owned by Christ. That's the way a ransom works. Somebody pays you out of the punishment you would deserve. That's, you're now owned by the one who paid When you chose Christ, you gave up your freedom because he now owns you. And we don't like this language. It just strikes us funny, but it's the scriptural reality. And so the reality we have to come to terms with as we talk about love and love being obedience, obedience to Jesus will limit your personal freedom. Anyone who tells you it doesn't isn't giving you the full story. Obedience to Jesus limits your personal freedom. We no longer bow to this amendment or that amendment, although we're under them. We bow to commandments. And when they don't align, we have a, a higher power. And so if the state house goes this color or that color, or if the presidency goes this direction or that direction, or, or the, man, if you're involved in that, God's giving you a calling in that, go. Be part of that. Make change. Lift up kingdom values. Great. Ultimately, wherever the culture goes, we have a higher culture that we respond to. We have a higher kingdom we are a part of. And and so no matter what the law would say, you have a higher law that you're bound by. And so so tomorrow, the law may say you're free to do X, Y, and Z. And if the scripture says you're not free to do that at all, then you don't get to go, "Ah, I like this one better. You go, I'm actually bound by this other thing. I'm not owned by Jesus. And so I'm bound by his law. This is not fun to think about until we think about the beauty that comes with it. We're going to get there. Paul is saying you were dead, and now you live in Jesus. Galatians 2.20, he says, I, Paul, have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, their love word again, and gave himself for me. So if you are in Christ, you aren't who you were. There's a new you. 2 Corinthians 5, 14. For Christ's love, again, love, Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Who are they living for? Self? Him. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. There's this exchange language over and over in Scripture that you were once dead, and through the suffering and the, the, the resurrection, crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, you were dead and you've been made alive. You've been ransomed and bought and purchased into a new life owned by Christ. Why? His love. His love compelled him to give his life for us, and so his love compels us that we would now live our lives for him. We've been made new. So we were dead in sin. We're now alive in Jesus. And Paul is saying some things, and some people are in the room, and some people who are kind of on the fence on this going, look, I 
I agreed to follow Jesus, but this, this Paul, I don't know if I agree with what Paul is saying. Let's listen to Jesus. Matthew 16. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my, my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Modern people don't like this. This runs in the face of the way that we live our lives, the way that culture speaks to us, that you have choice and that you have freedom and that you can choose your adventure and you can live your best path. And, and, and those things aren't mutually exclusive, but we have to understand that one reigns preeminent over the other. Jesus says you have to lose your life. You have to lose your life. He didn't wink and go, it's just a metaphor though, guys. It's just not a big deal. I mean, live your life, but like lose it, you know, got to say this to kind of, it's a contract. He didn't say that. He says you have to lose your life. Do you want to be my disciple? Take up your cross and lose your life. I said, I told you last week, I told our elders, I said, we might have a smaller church when we are done. But if we are a people that are aware and clear on what Jesus calls us into, that's okay. I'm not trying to kick people out of the Christian boat. I'm trying to say, I don't think we've been in the Christian boat very often. I think way too often we've drifted into some other, some other lagoon altogether. We need to hop out of that one, get back in the boat that Christ has created for us, and we have to get on with that life because it's not the same. And when we conflate the things of the world with the things of the kingdom, that doesn't make the, wor- the, the world more kingdom-like. It just sullies the kingdom. We have to get out of the idea that we can have both. Jesus says, if you want to save your life, if you want to be with me, if you want to follow me, you will lose your life. You will give up your freedom to do anything you want, and you're going to live a different way because you're living through me. We have been purchased. We are owned by God, bought by the blood of Jesus, and the life we live is in him and by him and for him. Back to John 15, Jesus is speaking, and he's handing out imperatives. He's not handing out suggestions. He's giving out imperatives. They're not optional. It's not, hey guys, if you feel like it, maybe love other people. Hey, if you're having a good day, try to be generous. He says, remain in my love. Okay, I mean, that, I can, how? Okay, how? Remain in my love. How, Jesus? By keeping my commandments. Oh, starting to feel a little dictatorial, buddy. Okay, how do we do that, though? How do we remain in your love and keep your, how do we do that? Love each other as I have loved you. Now, the people hearing this in person are the only people who were excused from not doing it right to begin with because they didn't know what was coming yet. Jesus hadn't gone to the cross yet. They may have been confused, like, oh, I mean, you seem to be a nice guy. I'll just be nice like you. And then a couple months later, Jesus is on a cross, and they go, do you think that's what he means for us? At the moment, they may be going, okay, so like be really nice to each other. And then later they get to go, do you, do you think he actually meant we have to lose our lives like he lost his life? Like we actually have to give ourselves up? There's an old saying about a chicken and a pig going to breakfast. You know this one? The bacon and eggs principle. The chicken is involved, the pig is committed. You know that one? Got to think about it for a minute. Wait a minute. Uh, why is the pig committed? When you look at the totality of God's word, it's difficult to find a justifiable way to be involved with Jesus. When you zoom out, 
and you look at the totality of God's word, when you look at the words, if you just go to the red letters and you just look at the words of Jesus, it's really difficult to justify being involved with Jesus. Just sort of date him on the side, just a little dalliance here and there, maybe a Sunday or maybe a Monday if it really takes on Sunday. I'll even leave Jesus Monday, but uh, it's hard. The challenge for us is if you have a hard time giving up freedoms and preferences, I actually think the issue is not that you love freedom and preferences too much. I think the issue is that you haven't experienced Christ's love. If your freedoms and preferences seem like they'd be hard to give up, you haven't put them up against Christ's love and you haven't felt the fullness of Christ's love because Christ's love is so much greater. It's so much greater than any other thing we could stack up against it that we wouldn't want any of it if we could have his love. We wouldn't want any of it if we could have his freedom. We wouldn't want any of it if we could have his promises and his assurance and his eternity. We wouldn't want it. And the problem is we don't sit in Christ's love and so we end up wanting our preferences. But if we actually took time to think about it, we would prefer his love over everything else. But we spend so little time in his love, we spend so little time in his word, we spend so little time at the feet of Jesus that we don't even understand what his love is. And so we end up wanting the trash of the world because we don't know the jewel of his love that is waiting for us. Paul calls himself a slave to Christ. And the very first part of Romans, when he, he introduces himself, hi, I'm Paul, writing to the church at Rome. It says, Paul, comma, a slave of Christ, comma. That's his, that's his title. He says, I'm a slave to Christ. We don't like that word at all. And yet the apostle Paul says, that's who I am. Having come under Christ, I'm now a slave to Christ. I don't get to talk back to that master. Jesus says, keep my commands. Obey me. We ask how, and he says, love one another as I have loved you. And it's not wildly complicated, but it's wildly important. So we ask the question, how did Jesus love you? Romans chapter 5. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's it. God demonstrates his what for us? His love. Jesus died for you even when you were a sinner. When you were dead to sin, he gave his life for you because that is what love looks like. So the question we would ask is, what does that mean for us? If that's what Jesus' love looks like for us and we've been asked to love the world as he loved us, then what? Does it mean we have to give up our lives for others? Yes. Does it mean we have to sacrifice our lives to see others come to life? Yes. Does it mean that we need to live so that the dead the spiritually dead might know life. Yes. And it's not intended to be a brutal, awful life either. People are like, man, this is a beatdown. I got to leave out here and I, I got this whole other Jesus obligation on me. It's not intended to be that at all. What can we expect, Jesus, from the, from the first Corinthians passage, verse 11? What does he say? I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. I, I've told you this. I've told you how to love so that my joy would be in you and your joy would be complete. Don't miss this. Jesus says that obedience is the heart of love and that a full commitment is required for this obedience to take hold. And all of this leads to perfect joy. 
And some of you in here, you already experience perfect joy. You wake up every morning feeling the fullness of joy. You go through your day and you're like, people are mad at you because you're so happy and you're just whistling. Everything's great. You're never hangry. All of it. And you're like, joy, I have, nobody's like that. We're all desperate for more joy. We're seeking happiness anywhere we can find it. And he says, I I got better than that. I got perfect, complete joy on offer. And we go, awesome. I want that joy. How do I get it? And he goes, it's obedience rooted in commitment, evidenced by self-sacrifice. And we go, is there another way to get joy? Is there like a discount section? Do you have a clearance aisle? Because that seems like a lot. Oh, well. And Jesus is faithful enough and secure enough to allow you to peruse the shopping aisles of the world. Try that on. Yeah, sure. See how that fits. Yeah, you want to try that? Do that too. And at the end of everything else we've done, we go, you know what? I'm not, I don't have perfect, complete joy. I don't have perfect, complete joy. I'm not even happy. And he goes, still got it over here. I got one product. It's me, and it's perfect and complete joy, but it, it's going to cost you because there's obedience rooted in commitment, evidenced by self-sacrifice. And if you can find that sort of love in your life, which is me, then you will know complete joy. All you have to do is love others the way I've loved you. And that love, God says, will complete our joy. So we have to reject the idea that love can be diluted or hijacked to be less than what God says it is. And we have to do it in every aspect of our life. Talking about love, people are expecting me to talk about marriage, I think. We might get there. Sometimes when I'm going to do a wedding, I usually let the couple choose what scripture they want. You know, what do you want to do? Okay, we like this psalm or we like this. Love is patient. Love is kind. I'm like, you sure you want that? Then they'll say Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5. Depending on people. Ephesians 5. That talks about marriage. And that's the the nice here because it says, wives submit to your husbands and husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. And depending on where we are in the world, people are like, I don't like that submission language. That's no good. And I'm okay with that. You don't have to like it. I don't even, that part is sort of inconsequential to me. The, the part that I sit on and I say, are you sure you want that? And I look straight at the husband in the eye. I said, because I'm going to say in front of all your friends and family that you have to love your wife as Christ loved the church. And if you want to go through how Christ loved the church, it's pretty heavy, man. Are you sure you want to do that? Do you want to commit to everybody you've ever met in your entire life, your kindergarten teacher and your grandmother? Do you want to tell them you're giving up your life for her? To which the young man will say, I just kind of wanted that submission part said out loud. And I say, the one doing the submission here is you. If you're going to be the leader, the leader leads by submitting and dying for the other. So congratulations on getting married. My friend, this is your funeral. (laughs) Can we have our deposit back? (laughs) Yes. You go to Ephesians 5, you talk about marriage and love, and what is, what is the heart of love and marriage? Paul says it this way. He says it's to put your own needs to death, to give your life sacrificially, to give days, to lift your wife up in glory. That's, that's the point. I'm not getting my needs met. You're dead, man. Dead men have no needs. <laughs> People don't like coming to counseling with me because that's where we go. I don't know. I'm not getting my needs met. Dead men have no needs. How are you serving? She doesn't follow me. Are you worth following? And we laugh. But Scripture's hard. It holds a high standard. And we have to be real about what it says about love and about faith and about submission and about obedience. These are big, heavy words, and we don't like any of them because they all attack our freedom. And yet Jesus says, you'll never know freedom until you know me. 
Wives, if your man ever has to quote the Bible to demand submission, he's already missed it. Tell him to give me a call. That's not biblical leadership. It is failure on display. Great leaders don't demand obedience. They love and they serve radically. Great leaders don't amass power. They give away power to lift up the powerless. Great leaders give of themselves even to death to see others experience life. Great leadership is not what can you do for me, it's how can I help you. There's no better leader than Jesus, and that is what he modeled. Verse 13, it says, Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Greater love. There's no greater love than laying one's life down for one's friends. So optimized, perfected love is sacrificial commitment to another. That's love. And a death on a cross is the symbol we're given for the example of perfect love. So reconstructing loves mean we have to look at the person who loved perfectly. We have to look at the one person who's ever loved perfectly. We go, this is how we reconstruct love. We deconstruct and now we reconstruct. So what we said last week is love is not a feeling. This week, love is not in your freedom. True love frees you from sin and death so that you can find hope and life as a slave to Christ. Love is obedience rooted in commitment as evidenced in self-sacrifice. Love is obedience rooted in commitment as evidenced by self-sacrifice. Jesus showed perfect obedience to the Father, rooted in his total commitment to his Father's will, evidenced by his death on the cross for you and I. Perfect love, perfectly lived. So let's wrap up. Do you want a great marriage? Find someone who might selflessly and sacrificially lay down their whole life for your benefit and your blessing. Do you want a great boss? Find someone who is more interested in serving you than squeezing out every ounce of your productivity. Do you want to find true love? Do you want to find someone who's interested in laying their life down for everyone around them? Find that person. Do you want to find a love like no other? Do you want to find love beyond what you've ever imagined? Do you want to find the love you can only dream of? Do you want to find that kind of no greater love? Find obedience rooted in commitment evidenced in self-sacrifice. And if you haven't yet, your invitation today is to find Jesus. To consider what he's called you to, to consider what he's offering you. That perfect love turns death to life. That perfect love invites you into something that is mysterious and beautiful and heavy and yet light all at the same time. Find Jesus and you'll find a, gr- a greater love than you've ever dreamed of. And I promise you, a greater love than you ever thought you could have. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, Jesus. Thank you for the love that we see through him and the way that, uh, that his love informs our life. Thank you for the salvation we know through you, but more than that, thank you for the the salvation from a life chasing lesser things. Thank you for saving us from all of the lesser things and the aisles of the world and instead calling us into something greater. Father, for the hearts that are heavy with uh, guilt or shame that somehow we've been doing this wrong, Lord, I pray that you would be... uh, ever-present, that you would remind us that your perfect love 
was given to erase our sin and our shame, that we just lean in and you're there. That you're attempting to make us whole as we go, that you're returning us to a fullness as we go. So God, I pray against sin and shame. I pray against the guilt and the pain. I pray against the things that, that hold us back from accepting you, from walking with you, from obeying you, from, from testing you out. Father, I pray that hearts today would be encouraged to lean in further with the joy that you offer being the great incentive, that fullness of joy. Lord, we need it. So I pray that you begin to show it to us as we lean in. God, thank you for your word and for your truth. Thank you for this life. We offer it back to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon, every Sunday, in person or online. Thanks for listening.